You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide, with Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. Episode 3, Reintegration of Terrorist Offenders After Custody. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. And welcome. Today I'm joined by Ian Atchison, an international expert on violent extremism in prisons and probation services. Ian entered the UK prison service in 1992. He left in 2011 after serving as the acting governor of HMP Earlstock. Later, he took up the position of director of safer communities at the Home Office, where he oversaw the implementation of the UK counterterrorism strategy contest in the southwest of England. After leaving the public service in 2016, Ian was asked by the Secretary of State for Justice to lead an independent analysis of Islamist extremism in the prison and probation system in England and Wales. The majority of the recommendations under this landmark review were accepted by the UK government. In December 2019, Ian was appointed as a visiting professor at Staffordshire University. It is under this role and in partnership with the Counter-Extremism Project that he is conducting groundbreaking research on disguised compliance by terrorist offenders. You're very welcome, Ian. There are about 6,000 European foreign fighters in Syria, Iraq. Many are now returning. Broadly, how do we deal with the growing challenge of this problem? Well, I do think that we have a significant global challenge that's posed by the remaining foreign terrorist fighters who are held in an archipelago of very poorly maintained and insufficiently guarded and insecure detention centres across northeast Syria, currently run by the Kurds, who of course don't have an official state. So they are looking after a significant number of foreign nationals into the thousands and their dependents in these camps. The estimates from the United Kingdom Security Service are that about 400 foreign fighters have already returned to the United Kingdom. About 350 fighters from the UK and their dependents remain there. They're a serious problem because increasing instability and insecurity in that region may mean that those foreign fighters might escape and pose a greater risk to us at some point in the future. Uh, Also, what we're seeing, certainly from reports by the UN and the United States, the detention centres for displaced people, uh, for example, the, the wives and children of jihadist fighters who are, are detained elsewhere, are becoming incubators for violent extremism. And you risk another generation being radicalised who are stuck often stateless in a legal limbo. In my opinion, we cannot simply morally, in terms of our obligation to the Kurds, abandon them in those uh, detention centres, but also in terms of national security, we do need to repatriate our nationals and put them through a criminal justice process, which is robust, that holds them to account for their crimes. There are different approaches, obviously, to this, and different countries have taken a different view. But you're saying that the safest way and the most secure way of dealing with this is to repatriate and bring these people home. Obviously, the UK government has taken a slightly different view. Mm. Are you critical of how the UK government has handled it? And what do you think they should be doing? In the United Kingdom and in other jurisdictions across Europe, there's no appetite at all for the return of people who, in essence, have uh, committed treason. They've gone willingly to fight for a foreign terrorist entity, IS, 
against their own nationals and in some cases have inflicted appalling brutality. But actually, I think we need to get beyond that and look at it from more of a practical and a national security angle. These camps are in a jurisdiction which is contested. The US has no appetite for staying on and providing essential overwatch over these camps. So what happens when all of that collapses? You then have a large number of combat experienced jihadists who are released into the community and who can melt away and perhaps reappear again in a different Islamist franchise. So I don't think it is sufficient to simply wash your hands of these people, as odious as many of them are. We also have some practical and legal issues across the European community and in the United Kingdom, where the legal systems aren't agile enough to be able to prosecute successfully people committing atrocities on a foreign battlefield in a contested area where evidence is very hard to gather. Some evidence suggests that only one in 10 returning foreign fighters are prosecuted in the UK. Now, it's a higher proportion in some other European countries, but that is a pretty damning Mm. indictment of the system. And you can see why people would have very little confidence in the ability of the system, the criminal justice system, to bring these people to justice. Of the 400 or so jihadists who've returned to the UK, only 14 of them have actually been successfully prosecuted for crimes committed on a foreign battlefield. So that's about 3.5%. Of that total that's that's returned, yes, about 10% have been prosecuted for terrorist offences, but the remainder have been prosecuted for offences committed on UK soil. So we don't have a very good track record of being able to successfully prosecute people who return. That must not, in my opinion, become a kind of council of despair. We can change the law. We've shown that we can be very agile in the UK in relation to our domestic Islamist extremists being released automatically and who, as you are aware, committed uh, terrorist crimes in terms of attacks in London Bridge and Streatham either side of last Christmas. Uh, And the UK reacted very swiftly after that happened to pass a law that stopped these offenders being released automatically at a point in their sentence with no judgment on their risk and so on. So we acted very quickly there. We can act very quickly to create legislation which will ensure that people who are returned to us, our own citizens, are effectively brought to justice. I think it's worse to leave these people who have effectively, as I've said, committed treason with no surveillance and with no management of their risk whatsoever. That, to me, does not represent smart national security. I suppose another angle, perhaps, from a national security point of view, and even from a criminal justice point of view, is have you seen much evidence of the value of these people, potentially, from an intelligence gathering point of view? Are they providing useful intelligence, or is that a fallacy? Well, I think, frankly, we have very little evidence about what intelligence they've provided us with, simply because a lot of opacity around how we've dealt with uh, returning foreign fighters, there's a lot of secrecy around it. We're told by the security services that there is a process involved, that the vast majority of returning foreign fighters, if you look at the statistics, have been released and represent either a low risk or no risk. I find that almost inconceivable, but that's what the statistics are telling us. I don't think we've made anything like enough effort in terms of debriefing people who have been in these camps to understand the trajectory that has converted them from British citizens into either supporters of or combatants for IS, for example. I think it's very, very important indeed for the purposes of slowing down and stopping this dismal conveyor belt of a young person into committed jihadist terrorists that we understand what is inspiring our own citizens to go out and and potentially uh, kill our our, our citizens abroad and pose a security threat to us. 
what led in the case of Shamima Begum, a teenager from uh, Tower Hamlets in London, to become an apologist and a poster girl for one of the most barbaric and uh, atrocious organizations the world has ever seen, Islamic State. Where was she groomed? What institutions got involved to try to stop her descent into a radicalized mindset? Who was responsible for managing that process? Who failed in that process? What did she discover when she went to IS territory? Uh, what can that tell us about how Islamic State is organizing itself? I mean, it doesn't have a caliphate anymore, and that's absolutely not to say it can't have a caliphate somewhere else, uh, Indonesia, for example, or in other failed or failing states, Yemen or Somalia, in the future. We have to have the appetite to be able to get people back, to process them safely and effectively, put them under surveillance and debrief them, because we have to know how to stop this descent into radicalized ideological terror. I think it's a really interesting point because you're looking at it not just from the point of view of sort of a hard security and intelligence gathering, but also helping to understand how to prevent radicalization in the first place. You've already identified several challenges that are common, I think, to any country globally that's dealing with terrorist threat. The low success rate in prosecutions is one that's a domestic issue as well as an issue in relation to mm. returning foreign fighters and also the issue of early release. And I think that this is something that has come to the fore because several of the recent attacks on UK soil have been perpetrated by people who've been released and who were being surveilled by the police. The UK government published in May the Counterterrorism and Sentencing Bill, which is really, I suppose, in a sense, it's a return to powers that were vested in 2005 in relation to the, the terror threat at that stage. They were then somewhat watered down. They're being reinstated. Do you think that there's a strong case for that? Will this legislation make much of a difference? Mm. What are the sort of the lessons perhaps that other jurisdictions could learn from what the UK government mm. is now doing? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the events either side of Christmas and the attacks in London Bridge and Streatham illustrated a risk management system for terrorist offenders that was irredeemably broken. It's a very serious challenge to it and the government, to give it credit, responded immediately with emergency legislation to stop the automatic release of terrorist offenders at uh, the halfway point in their custody, which was extraordinary really when you think about it, given how potentially dangerous to society these people are. I think that's a good step in the right direction. It will result in a small number of people serving more time in custody. I spoke at the scrutiny committee for the sentencing and counterterrorism bill. I was very clear that we can't just be satisfied with increasing the quantity of custody that uh, ideologically motivated offenders spend. We have to increase the quality as well. We're nowhere near good enough to get terrorist offenders to desist from further offending and ultimately to get them to disengage completely from their toxic worldview and their ideology that inspires acts of terrorism. Certainly in 2016, I was saying that in relation to the whole sentence of a terrorist offender, we need to be much more assertive, not reactive. We need to be much more challenging from the first night of the terrorist offender's journey in custody to the last day of his or her community supervision after release from prison. We need a multidisciplinary task force that is managing every aspect of that offender's life and every aspect of their resettlement as well when they leave the prison. And there's no point, in my opinion, having a series of handovers between different organizations like the probation service and the parole board, who are very good, incidentally, at managing ordinary offenders, non-ideological offenders, but who I don't think are 
organizationally or philosophically suitable for managing people who believe that they have, in the case of Islamist extremists, who pose the greatest threat to us in the UK in terms of our national security, divine permission to, to murder innocent people. I think we need a completely different approach that starts far earlier in the offenders, the terrorist offenders journey through custody. We need a different sort of process and we need a different collection of people who are managing that. We need to do the same with our domestic offenders who end up in our prisons. There aren't that many of them. There are only about around 220 terrorist offenders in custody in prisons in England and Wales. Uh, 183 of them, or more or less, are Islamist extremists. And again, they represent the biggest population and, to my mind, the, the most potent threat that we have. But that's actually quite a manageable number in a prison system of around 80,000. We ought to be able to have a standalone agency that manages those offenders. Why is that important? Well, I think, first of all, um, when we understand more about the, the biography, the, the pre-radicalization space that these people were in before they were indoctrinated. So we need an agency that looks at the, the, the pre-radicalization space. When I talk about these stages, I'm referring here to the, the brilliant work that our colleague Mitch Silber, uh, former head of intelligence for the NYPD, has done in identifying with Jesse Morton those stages of radicalization. We need to look at the self-identification process that comes after that when unhappy people from disadvantaged backgrounds are searching for meaning. We need to then look at the indoctrination space where they come into contact with and are groomed by violent extremists. And then the final part, what Mitch called the jihadization, where they are mobilized to violence. When you've got the 220 odd people in one place, that is the best possible place to look at that and to be able to then offer and design individualized treatments for those people that reduces their risk to others, that leads to what I call desistance, which means either stopping or being made to stop, being at further great risk. And then the golden fleece, the disengagement, the voluntary disavowal of a, a previous identity. Ian, you talked about the gold standard or the aspiration of achieving disengagement, but mm. one of the things that you have looked at in quite a lot of detail is this whole issue of false disguised compliance. If you take the example of Usman Khan, who was responsible for London Bridge, he and 74 others were released without any risk assessment. There is a, an inherent risk that if a terrorist offender knows that the objective is rehabilitation and they play along with it, give all the indicators that they are working positively and constructively with the program. But ultimately, I think as you've described it, they are ideologically bulletproof. How do you detect yeah. that? And is there much data or research on that? CEP are uh, going to start a project with Staffordshire University looking into this whole uh, issue of false or sometimes known as disguised compliance with terrorist offenders. There is some evidence and there's some research based on the behavior of, for example, people who commit domestic violence or people who commit sex offenses. Social work and forensic psychology is interested in supporting professionals to know when people are truly telling the truth about a change in their worldview that makes them authentically less dangerous than they otherwise would be. One of the problems dealing with terrorist offenders in custody, where there has been much less research into this area, is that the interventions that we have, certainly in the United Kingdom, 
in terms of their quantity and quality, uh, I don't believe are sufficiently good enough to deal with disguised compliance. Now, we don't actually know in relation to Usman Khan whether or not definitively he was pulling the wool over the eyes of the people who were involved with him. He had gone through in prison the healthy identity intervention, which I certainly know from my research in 2016, speaking to people who'd been through that process, they would say is very easy to game. To have a tick in the box to say you've passed that program, the inference being that you are less dangerous but actually to be able to completely disguise your intentions, which haven't changed at all. So you still, as you've said, Lucinda, remain ideologically bulletproof. We need a step change in the interventions that we provide, as well as much more support and training and skills for the people who are involved in those interventions to be able to tell as, as best they can whether somebody has genuinely, authentically changed their offending behaviour. And that, of course, is hugely important in relation to terrorist offenders. Even the most optimistic research, and I take some exception to the recent research that has been done, about terrorist reoffending, says that about 5% of terrorist offenders go on to reoffend. Now, even if we take that as a proxy, that still means in relation to the 500 or so people who've been released over the last 10 years who are terrorist offenders from custody, We've got a fairly significant number of people who are capable of reoffending and committing serious terrorist offences uh, in terms of the societal damage that they are capable of doing and in terms of the casualty headcount. Now, even if you look at the 50 or so people who've been released in the last 12 months who've been convicted of terrorist offences, if you apply that 5% recidivism rate, that still means a couple of people out there potentially going to reoffend. It only took two people to commit the Manchester Arena atrocity. We can't be satisfied with any number of people that are going to reoffend in terms of terrorism. And we must do everything we can to satisfy ourselves that people's risk is sufficiently low that they can be released with whatever surveillance is appropriate to them. If we can't be satisfied, even with the best research and the work that we're going to do with Staffordshire University, there's probably a small number of those people that must be detained perhaps indefinitely on the basis that they represent an unjustifiable risk for release. The level of destruction and chaos which mm. a tiny number of people can wreak on society is extraordinary and we have seen that right across you know, the United States, across Europe and much further afield. Clearly, there are flaws, there are challenges in our prison and probation services. That was evidenced, as you've pointed out, in the London Bridge attack, uh, the Streatham attack. Do we sufficiently understand what drives people to carry out these atrocities? Do our uh, probation services or prison services mm. sufficiently understand that? What more can be done to really comprehend the ideology that drives all of this? I don't think you can beat Islamism without Islam. One of the things that I'm pleased to say the prison service here in the UK is doing is recruiting and training a significant number of imams to be able to go in and challenge some of these very simplistic messages that are being peddled at highly vulnerable, credulous and suggestible young men. We know quite a lot about the process of radicalisation, although, of course, it's highly variable. But I think in broad terms, we could say that the attraction and this would go across all forms of ideological extremism. The attraction to people is, first of all, to have a series of simplistic messages that can explain and make sense of your grievance. 
and your, your sense of loss. Uh, for example, if you're a violent young man convicted of, of that sort of offence, begin a, a sentence in custody, a toxic environment, perhaps facing a long sentence and very alienated from your family, the state, and from authority in general, and you're looking for answers. You're also incidentally looking for a pragmatic way to stay intact when you're in custody. So you're highly vulnerable in that sense, but that's why simplistic messages that explain that uh, alienation to you and say, it's not your fault, it's somebody else's fault, are very powerful and attractive. The second phase of that in terms of a sort of grooming process uh, by people who want to radicalize others is to be able to create and then dehumanize the culprits for the alienation. Religiosity, when you pour that into the mix as well, starts to then say, these others are the oppressors, for example, the occupiers of territory across the world that should be occupied by true believers uh, and so on. So you get then a dehumanizing process of the, in relation to Islamist extremisms, of the infidel and so on. And then that can be mobilized, that um, process, into a kind of retribution uh, against those people who have oppressed you. Once you've been through that process, you are a, a potentially very dangerous person. In addition to imams and representatives of the Muslim community, is there a role for reformed terrorists? Is this something that's happening in any sort of a structured way in the British system or anywhere else in Europe that you're aware of? I don't think we in, in the UK make enough use of uh, resources outside the state to help with the process of disengagement from ideological offending. In other countries, you will see people being involved from the voluntary sector and from uh, non-governmental organizations, some of whom will have been um, previously involved in uh, violent extremism and will have rejected that and are uh, you know, examples that uh, can be used very effectively, in my opinion. We don't do that uh, in the UK. The state is the monopoly after release from custody on the control and surveillance of terrorist offenders. Now, that's obviously very necessary. And while I see it as necessary that the state plays the key role in keeping the community safe, I believe it is insufficient in relation to being able to tackle that radicalized mindset, challenge it and um, diffuse it, if you like. So I think the state anywhere must work in partnership with the community that that person has come from in order to give that person the released uh, offender who's been convicted of terrorist offense, the best chance of resettling and uh, adopting a more healthy life that rejects violence. They are, they're highly vulnerable to getting reinvolved in the first days and weeks after they've been uh, released. And unfortunately, we saw that being played out with uh, the Streatham uh, attack in, uh, in January of, of this year, when uh, the offender was released from custody and was literally being man-marked by police surveillance because he was deemed to be so dangerous. And of course, he was... Uh, ultimately uh, stopped and, and killed by police when he started attacking people. I think there's a great need for immediate support for terrorist offenders who've been released from custody. When you talk about the need for the involvement of communities, do you sense an appetite from those communities? Prevent was viewed with quite a degree of suspicion in the UK, and we've seen mm. suspicion between state agencies, law enforcement, mm. etc., in other parts of the world as well. Is that a barrier or is that something that can be overcome? I think in relation to prevent that uh, the, the UK government has been derelict in terms of explaining and promoting what is a 
essentially a safeguarding process that seeks to identify and stop people, often young people, being drawn into violent extremism. I think we've been supine in terms of uh, defending that very sensible approach uh, as part of our counterterrorism strategy. It's certainly been used and uh, uh, copied across the world. And we, we ought to be much more robust in our defense of that in relation to Islamist extremism and prevent that the conversation was hijacked by some self-styled community representatives who were in fact agitators working for organizations that supported terrorists uh, to uh, try to give the impression that prevent was an oppressive Orwellian uh, state persecution of Muslims. Actually, it's quite interesting that when that has been gone round, if you like, that narrative. And research has been conducted by Crest Advisory, a very reputed uh, think tank in the UK, that shows that the Muslim population overwhelmingly support Prevent and support the police in terms of their uh, counter-terrorism approach. We need to build on that very quickly and recruit people in the Muslim community to be partners in protecting our national security. I think that's a win-win. So if we get people in the community involved in the resettlement and the reintegration of terrorist offenders after custody. I think we've got a better chance of supporting and enabling those people, those offenders to live different, better and, and non-violent futures. We also give a vote of confidence to our fellow citizens who happen to be Muslim, the vast majority of whom have absolutely abhorred terrorism committed in the name of their religion and want to do something practical to help. And there are ways of being able to harness that that help in uh, very particular ways, and it mirrors the way that uh, in this country we help sex offenders, who incidentally have many of the similar challenges when they leave custody, of shame, the inability to find somewhere to live, to find something positive to do, of a lack of support within the community, which actually makes their recidivism much more likely. So in relation to sex offenders, a process was developed based on a Canadian model called Circles of Trust and Accountability, that put a circle of trusted and skilled people in the community to, to be able to maintain a relationship with the offender, in this case, the sex offender, and also to be able to put him under surveillance, which keeps him safe, but also means that he's got a means of support if he's in crisis, and is a long-term commitment to that person based ultimately on protecting the community, but you protect the community by protecting the individual. I genuinely believe there is a real opportunity here, I've been advocating for this for some time, to get the uh, Muslim community involved in managing that process in partnership with other protective services that are looking after that person as well. I think if we have that, we win for society, we win for communities, uh, and we win for national security. That's a really interesting concept um, and I suppose one that has to some extent been uh, either replicated or trialled in different European countries but not in any kind of grand scale so it'll be interesting to see if, if that approach um, is developed further. You've spoken a lot about the need for an integrated approach. I always like reading your articles and hearing your thoughts on this because I think often we become quite despairing about how dysfunctional the approach to dealing with terrorist integration, reintegration, rehabilitation can be, and indeed how despairing we can be about prevention also. But you actually strike quite a positive tone, which you know can be refreshing. It would be really interesting, I think, how you see 
an integrated system working, a standalone agency, what would be involved? What are the different strands of that approach uh, that would all be sort of woven together to, to create this gold standard in terms of managing the rehabilitation and reintegration of terrorism? I would answer that as, first of all, to kind of describe what's happening now. And that is a terrorist offender who's coming to the end of his sentence is subject to decisions on release by the parole board, which is a statutory agency that will collect uh, reports on that uh, offender's history and make a judgment based on those reports and uh, probably a face-to-face interview with the offender as well. And then the offender is released and will be supervised by the probation service. I think that process comes far too late in the custodial journey of a terrorist offender to guarantee uh, the best outcome. Somebody who lives risk-free in the community and does not threaten others through terrorism. I think there's a better way of doing it. And I have several criticisms about the probation service and the parole board, who are very good actually at managing the risk of ordinary offenders, those who steal cars, burgle houses, commit sexual offences and murder, but aren't philosophically, organisationally attuned to somebody who's motivated by ideology. Which is why I think we need an earlier and better form of intervention that starts literally when the judge or a jury has convicted an offender and the judge is working out the sentence. So after conviction, I think we need a baseline risk assessment. And we've got various ways across Europe uh, and in the UK of managing the riskiness of terrorist offenders. But I think we need to take whatever assessment we do as early as that to have a baseline risk score of that offender. And then we need professionals composed in a multidisciplinary way of psychiatrists, forensic psychologists, and crucially, the frontline prison staff who spend the most time face-to-face with these offenders. One of the criticisms I have of the current system is, uh, despite the fact the parole board will say, we've got specialist judges making decisions on the release of terrorist offenders, they don't get to live with day-to-day these offenders and to understand in a very deep and rich way what motivates them, whether or not they're authentically changed. All that crucial and very rich data might be converted into a report, for example, one of many at the end of the process to, to the parole board. But actually, I don't think that's enough. I think we need to involve frontline practitioners and specialists doing a detailed biography, first of all, of that pre-radicalization space developing a sense of that offender, then directing individualized treatment programs, not some of the generic stuff we have at the minute, that tackle the individual pathologies of those offenders. So in that uh, pre-radicalization space that Mitch Silver speaks about, the environment that caused people to get involved in violent offending in the first place, you might see substance misuse problems, you might see family problems, you might see later on theological problems. You might see a whole range of different problems and you need to vary the dosage of that and have an organization that's skilled at doing that and applying interventions and then changing them through that journey through custody and then taking responsibility for those offenders when they are released. At the minute, for example, when a terrorist offender is released, those offenders will go to something called approved accommodation and they may well be with other non-ideological offenders. And I think that's a completely insufficient way of dealing with these particularly and potentially very dangerous people. They need to go to their own standalone secure facilities. They need to be properly prepared and assessed for very gradual release into the community. They need special levels of surveillance and supervision to keep themselves and others safe from them. There's a lot more that we can do. I am, as you've said, I'm very optimistic 
that if we have the, the will here, and again, let's go back to the statistics. There are only about 220 terrorist offenders in custody at the minute. Of those, maybe next year, another 40 or 50 are due to be released. We've got to find a better way of managing that risk through custody and in the community. We do have the available expertise. We need a different way of applying that expertise and we need a different way of, of operating that expertise. It simply takes political will to do that because the flip side of make, do and mend systems that we've operated, I think partly because we have a, an arrogance in terms of our self-belief in having managed terrorism longer than other countries. But I think that gives a very false sense of security because these offenders are wholly different. As you say, in the grand scheme of things, the numbers are absolutely minuscule. Yeah. So it really should be possible to manage the risk and the threat from these convicted offenders, yeah. because that's what we're focusing on. Yeah. Um, do you have confidence that there is the political will or that there can be the political will in, in the UK at the moment? I think there can be the political will. Um, I think it does exist within government, but my fear is it's going to take more atrocities, unfortunately, to be able to stimulate the sorts of things that I've been talking about. These are relatively straightforward things to do. In relation to terrorist offenders, there is no simple way around the fact that they will need long-term expensive surveillance in a system that's already creaking at the seams with all the threats it faces in relation to the security service, for example. But we can get ourselves out of this problem. We can, I think, be world leaders in this country in tackling offending behaviour and, and being successful at defeating what is a, you know, a, a huge challenge to this state. And maybe we'll end on this. Ian, our colleague Jesse Morton, who is a, a former Al-Qaeda recruiter, he has proposed that the United States Bureau of Prisons should pilot a rehabilitation and reintegration mm. program across its US prisons. Mm. Is this also necessary in the United Kingdom, do you think? Yes, and we, we've talked about the, the mechanism that that could work. But I think Jesse's work with Mitch Silber in the Parallel Networks NGO that they created is you know, world-leading. Uh, effectively, what Jesse advocates is a replacement of the people that these terrorist offenders are likely to try to reconnect with when they leave custody with a much more healthy selection of pro-social individuals within the community that can guide and redirect former offenders to a, a less toxic identity and to a better life. You know, as we've said, that is a long-term commitment to offenders that could go on for many years, but Jesse has certainly uh, laid the groundwork for that. Ian Atchison, on that slightly upbeat note, thank you very, very much for participating in this podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And you too, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.